Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Good evening, children of the night. Thank you again for joining our traveling caravan as we head east towards our new home. I've taken us on a bit of a detour, and we find ourselves in a rather brisk evening under a waning gibbous moon in southern Michigan. Quite a few years ago, I became fascinated with the state of mental health facilities and treatments in this country after watching the film When Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. First, the social aspect of group therapy that, at that time, was so popular. Then, the seemingly barbaric ending of the film, I won't spoil it for any young listeners that haven't actually seen this wonderful piece of cinema yet, which was still in practice at the time that the book that it is based on was written. Then, my interest drifted to the Kirkbride buildings, which are enormous structures that were built specifically to house America's mentally infirm. I've only visited one of them, which is still open, and I think it'll be on our way east as well, so we'll talk about it later. Then I stumbled on a rare book, The Three Christ of Ypsilanti, written by Milton Rokich, a social psychologist. The title of the book almost gives the whole story away. Milton discovered that Ypsilanti State Hospital houses three men, all claiming to be Jesus Christ. So, naturally, he gets those fellows together and lets them hash it out, since it can't possibly be that all three of them are God's one and only Son. Those men saw only slight improvement and perhaps only temporary improvement but they spent the remainder of their days in the hospital. The book was out of print for many years, but came back into print in 2011. In the show notes, I've linked Amazon's page for the book, and I've also included a link to a recent article at Slate that is a shorter read and does the book justice in its synopsis. Also, for the podcast inclined, I've linked to the You Are Not So Smart podcast, which covers the subject as well. So, yes, that is why we are at the corner of Platt and Willis Road, just south of Ypsilanti. Just north of us, do you see those buildings and lights? 
No, they're not from Ypsilanti State Hospital. That's the Toyota Technical Center. That's what's there now. Years ago, I came to the spot early one morning, slipped into the long abandoned buildings of the Ypsilanti State Hospital, and spent the entire day wandering through its empty, sometimes vandalized dorms, hallways, group rooms, and facilities, all while hoping to not bump into the private security to watch the enormous site. After hours of my self-guided tour of exploration, feeling overwhelmed by the history of the persons who lived and sometimes died in this very place, I left, not knowing that I would be one of the last humans to be inside of its walls. Toyota had already bought the property and slated it for demolition. Maybe you can still feel some of the hopes and fears that those people had when they were under the same Michigan moon just a few decades ago. (sighs) Well... Once we leave here, let's go back across Highway 23 up Carpenter Road and see if we can find where Iggy Pop grew up. On to podcast business. We have two new editors. First, I will introduce Peter, our new fiction editor. He is currently working until going back to college in spring of 2015 to University of Akron, in which he will be enrolled as an electrical engineering student. Born in Marietta, Georgia, but lived in Columbus, Ohio the majority of his life. Learning French, listening to podcasts, and contemplating the future of the human species takes up most of his energy these days. Now, he has been given the honor of reading submissions under the dark in order to increase the state of horror. He does love hanging with friends when he has time and taking long walks outside. He has a Tumblr and WordPress blog. Links are in the show notes. And second, Phil joins Tales to Terrify as our new audio editor, A Colorado native, he has traveled extensively through the known universe, both physically and his imagination. He's been called a modern MacGyver, a renaissance man, as well as some other less uplifting things in his time. He has a background in construction, retail, HR, management, and currently works in IT. All this while pursuing his degree in English and digital media journalism. When he's not working to keep his many candles burning at both ends, he enjoys reading, writing, and sowing the seeds of chaos in various video games and trying desperately to beat his father at billiards. You can find some of his writing and varied thoughts on humanity at his WordPress blog, which, of course, link is in the show notes. Our staff's page has been updated with their pictures, bios, and links. Welcome to the show, Peter and Phil. And on to tonight's fiction. Our first story comes to us from Nancy Kress. Nancy Kress was born in Buffalo, New York on January 20th, 1948. She grew up in East Aurora, New York, a sleepy upstate town given to cows and apples, where she spent most of her childhood either reading or playing in the woods. She went to college at State University of New York at Plattsburgh, earning a degree in elementary education, which she put to use for the next four years, teaching the fourth grade. She liked this. Although she began writing fantasy, Nancy currently writes science fiction, most usually about genetic engineering. She teaches regularly at summer conferences such as Clarion West and Taust Toolbox. For 16 years, she was the fiction columnist for Writer's Digest magazine and has written three books about writing. Her fiction has won four nebulas for Out of All Them Bright Stars, Beggars in Spain, The Flowers of All at Prison, and Fountain of Age, two Hugos for Beggars in Spain and the Erdenman Nexus, a Sturgeon for the Flowers of All at Prison, and a John W. Campbell Memorial Award for 
probability space. Her work has been translated into Swedish, French, Italian, German, Spanish, Polish, Croatian, Lithuanian, Romanian, Japanese, Russian, and if that was not good enough for you, Klingon, none of which she can read. Tonight's story from Nancy will be Green Thumb, which appears to have originally been published in Charles L. Grant's anthology, Terrors, which is available from sellers on Amazon if you are so inclined. Green Thumb is largely set in the Bide a While Mobile Home Park, a trailer park, if you will, not too dissimilar to the one up the road that Iggy Pop grew up in, although I think that some of the characters in the story came out of the park with a bit less than a wonderful musical career. I'll see you on the other side. The puppy crouched in an alley outside the barbell. Wilfred Connors saw it when he came out from the cut-rate liquor, the long brown bag under his coat, and crossed the street to the alley. The puppy saw him coming and backed up, dragging its left hind foot until it backed into a garbage can. The can made a hollow clang, and the puppy stopped, half-pricking its left ear. The right ear was gone, torn to a diagonal, blood-crusted stump. Connors put out one hand, hesitated, and stuck out the long brown bag instead. The puppy sniffed at it and looked up at him. From under its matted fur jutted hanger-thin bones. Connors shuffled closer and squatted, The smell of dung and garbage rose from the puppy in a cloud. The man hardly noticed, caught by the warm, groin-deep pleasure sliding through his body. How long since the last time? Too long, he thought. Too damned long. Months at least. Must be months. Yeah, months. November. The kitten outside the pickle factory. It had clawed his face, damn near blinded him and bit and tore. He looked again at the puppy. It gave one tentative, tired wag of its small tail and the injured foot splayed out a little to one side. It wouldn't bite. Sure now, Connors reached out. His eyes red-rimmed and ferret sockets lost their sullenness and widened a little. The puppy barked weakly, a skinny yap of excitement, and twisted its head to lick the man's hand. Just short of the scruff of the neck, the hand stopped. On the left side of the puppy's neck was a circular open sore. Thick pus the colour of old eggs oozed and crusted in the surrounding fur, and in the pus wriggled small white flecks, twisting and burrowing. Connors stared in sickened fascination. A movie... Hadn't there been a movie, some goddamned old time thing where the broads all had their tits hanging out of low dresses, and there had been these rats, rats with something wrong, and some kind of goddamn plague, the corpses piled and rotting, their lips swollen black and pustules. He whimpered and backed away from the puppy. It followed him, dragging the injured leg and yipping. He turned and began to run, stumbling over beer cans and cracks on the sidewalk, zigzagging to avoid pursuit because this time they might all decide to take out after him. The black man in the purple shirt who shouted, Hoo-wee! when Connor scuttled past. The blousy shouting woman who looked like... But he was past her, 
past the man he'd picked that bar fight with because the bastard looked so puny but goddamn wasn't, past the street corner preacher in front of the head-on sex shop who yelled, Repent, brother, and carried a blade. Once he stumbled and fell, but picked himself up, cursing, hurrying again until he was on the bus, till he was away from his stop, till he was in the trailer. He slammed the door. The world was locked goddamn out. It couldn't hurt him, and he couldn't hurt it. But during his stumble, the whiskey bottle had somehow become cracked. When he opened it, he cut himself on the glass. He discovered the plants by accident. Tuesday morning, and he was alternately nursing and cursing a hangover in the filthy, minuscule trailer he rented in the Bidewile mobile home park. A brisk knock on the metal door made the trailer reverberate like a kicked tin can. Christ! Who the hell is it? It's just me, Mr Connors, your neighbour, Ida Gilmore. More jaunty knocks. Wilfred lurched to open the door, the cubes from his ice pack spilling out of their grey dish towel and sliding across the cracked linoleum. A blinding gale of sunlight tore through the door. Oh, Mr Connors, I'm so sorry to disturb you, but I just couldn't help noticing that you didn't go to work today or yesterday, and I thought to myself, what if poor Mr Connors is ill? She glanced briefly, no more than a flicker of shiny black eyes, at the bottle astride his reeking trash. And I thought too, she burbled on, the breeze scraping through her wiry hair and dragging at the dress tenting over her cigar-shaped body. What would cheer up an invalid? And I knew just the thing, a little plant. Don't like plants. Oh, I just know you don't mean that, Mr. Connors. You're just not feeling quite yourself. I quite understand. But I know it will raise your spirits. Plants are such gay, innocent, helpless little things. She reached inside to set the plant on the table, smiled toothily, and turned. Halfway to her own trailer, she called over her shoulder. Oh, it's a Boston fern. They like lots of water, but be sure not to put it near a window or the fronds will burn. Connor slammed the door, regretted it, and then eyed the plant. It sat lightly in the pot, pale green fronds springing over the edges, their ends delicately feathered. He walked all around the table, watching it. Then he carried it gently over to the sink and set it on the filthy windowsill, the fronds directly touching the glass through which the spring sunlight exploded. Even though his patchy dry skin pulled tautly over his bloodshot eyes, he didn't even wince as he smiled. It took the plant two weeks to die, first losing its tender green colour, then drooping over the edges of the pot, and finally becoming merely a brown smear on the cracked hard soil. He started small. The first purchase was a philodendron, and every night after arriving home from his janitorial job at the pickle factory, he threw his lunchbox at the sink, cursed the ache in his shoulders, and for what goddamn non-union pay, and tore one leaf off the plant, shredding it slowly and sensuously between fingers that smelled faintly of brine. Later, he bought another philodendron, a grape ivy, and two cents of vieria. Sometimes he let one dry out until its leaves were yellow and almost brittle, only to water it at what he judged was the last minute, flooding it with the life-giving fluid, chuckling to himself. The plant knew. It knew all right, deep in its stem, that the water was only a reprieve, given or withdrawn whenever he, old Wilfred Connors, decided. The cell-sized trailer began to fill up with plants. They covered the window ledges, measly counter space, most of the table, and spilled out onto the floor. 
Some he bought. Most were weeds he dug up and smuggled home in his lunchbox. Once, after dawdling at the pickle factory until all the mucky mucks had left and the parking lot was empty, he stole a small shrub from under the foreman's window, leaving an empty brown gash in the soft earth. The gash obscurely pleased him. He almost wanted to lie down in it. The plants he potted in whatever was handy. Margarine tubs, old boxes, ice cube trays. He took to drinking his whiskey without ice. There was even a plant, an African violet, in the farthest corner under the bed against the wall. Sometimes he would awake in the night and imagine it gasping for light. He would turn lazily in his bed, lying on his hairy stomach against the wall exactly over the plant, and smile to himself in the dark. But it was Miss Gilmore who unwittingly let him glimpse how crude his methods really were. She accosted him one July morning as he was leaving for work, hurrying across the muddy trailer lot with a flat from the local nursery clutched to her bony chest. Oh, Mr. Connors, would you like some azaleas? I bought more than I can use, and they do flower so beautifully, don't you think? Here, you must take two or three. She pried out three plants encrusted in dirt balls. And oh, Mr. Connors, she continued, putting her head to one side in a grotesque parody of coyness. I see by all the plants you've been bringing home that you've become quite a lover of them after all. Didn't I tell you so? Yeah, I guess so. After a moment, he added, Thanks. Something about Miss Gilmore made him edgy, spooked him somehow. He stared down sullenly at the ground. She had on old black shoes with toes as pointed as stilettos. Oh, and you know what you might do? You might add a little vinegar to the soil. Just put two tablespoons in a quart of water and use it every two or three weeks. The water is so hard here, you know, and azaleas can suffer from too much lime. The roots burn and the leaves just droop in anguish. Yeah, okay. She kept standing there, smiling at him, her black eyes shiny. He finally mumbled, Gotta go, and was obscurely relieved when she turned away. Bye, she called over her shoulder and something below the surface of her stridently cheerful voice made him hurry around the corner to the bus stop. He bought a bag of lime. Eventually he took to dropping in at the library, skulking through the unfamiliar stacks, looking for books on plants that were not too hard to read. He studied them laboriously, feeling a warm, sweet pleasure slide through him when he found something and thought about using it. He discovered that cigarettes can transmit tobacco mosaic virus to petunias, that mayonnaise rubbed on dracaena will clog its stomata and partially suffocate it, that enough wood ash on potatoes will cause scabby tubers. He overheard two blue-haired ladies on a bus discussing experiments by some big-shot professor about what loud music did to plants, how their growth suffered some crazy way, and he scraped together the money to buy a cheap record player and two albums by Led Zeppelin. He was drinking less than he had in years, just a couple a night. The dreams about the movie rats stopped, and so did that other one, the one more memory than dream, where Mama was drunk and she took the... But he had stopped dreaming it. His eyes grew clearer, his face less puffy, and occasionally he would hum a little to himself. A few of the men at the pickle factory, noticing, made one or two friendly remarks, but he rebuffed them. He needed no one, he thought, in astonished gloating. No one. He had his own world, he ruled it absolutely, and all of his pretty perfumed subjects cringed and deserved fear when his boot scraped on the threshold.
In August, the dog days squatted over the city. The thermometer reached the 90s and clung. An inversion trapped the factory pollution and the city became a gritty, steaming slop bucket in which everyone brazed. Hospital admissions for respiratory emergencies set new records. The pickle factory was a briny hell. Wilfred's tiny trailer, choked with hundreds of plants, became a tropical jungle, smelling of steamy dirt, lush foliage and a faint odour of pickles. He stripped as soon as he arrived home from work and walked among them naked, brushing against the flowering species and smiling as their leaves were pushed away from him by his hairy, sweaty belly. Yeah, you know what I could do to you, don't you? He crooned at a clump of pansies in a cool whip tub, their yellow petals hollowed inward to form a delicate cup, furred with brown at the centre. He caressed the flowers, sipping at the whiskey he held in one hand, his eyes gradually growing thoughtful. He put down his drink, his third, but it was so damned hot, and, keeping one hand on the pansies, was moving the other downward, over his belly, when the phone shrilled. Yeah, yeah, this is him. Where'd you say the call's from? Oh, Christ. Yeah, yeah, I accept it. Go ahead. How'd you find me, you goddamn bitch? No, never mind. I told you last time. The voice on the other end of the phone rose suddenly to a grating rasp. He began to pant a little, his eyes roaming wildly over his plants, never still. Mama, I told you before, I'll be damned if I send you any more of my dough when you... No, you listen, you listen one goddamn minute! The voice shrieked. Wilfred listened. As he did, he clamped the phone under his chin, sank to the floor and began to rock back and forth, slowly at first and then hard enough to make the closest plants tremble slightly. His eyes tightened into murderous pinpoints of light. Under his naked sausage thighs crunched stray bits of grit and vermiculite. You can ask Marion this time. How the hell should I know where to find her? She's your kid. But I don't give a damn if... Come off that crap! I told you! Abruptly, the grating voice rose to a shriek, shrilling epithets and blasphemies, twisting maternal abuse and filial shame into a crude lash that beat at him until he lay curled on the floor, his eyes screwed shut and his naked belly quivering ludicrously. Still the voice screamed on, a hurricane sound, calling him and reminding him and telling him about all the things he... All right, he sobbed. All right, Mama, all right. I know you meant... You know I didn't... I'll send the money right away, tonight, but please, oh, please stop. Yes, tonight, as much as I can manage, tonight, and I'll... The phone went dead. He crouched on the floor, curled around the dead phone, staring at nothing, rocking himself back and forth, back and forth. Gradually, the rocking stopped, but the murderous pinpoint eyes remained, looking unseeingly around the filthy trailer at the crazy quilt of plants over which he was king. A terracotta pot containing a straggly tomato plant shrugged at the edge of the table, fell and shattered. He dressed and went out. The barbell was crowded. A whining fan sluggishly pushed around all the air within a three-foot radius. The regulars, most of them men sliding past middle age, hunched over their drinks at the bar as though staving off cold instead of leaden heat. Wilfred knew all of them by sight, none by name. In the dingy booths along the wall, the hookers sat primly on torn vinyl and eyed the men sullenly. Buy you a drink, fella? I'm celebrating, 
He scowled at the fat man in the orange leisure suit. Nah. Oh, come on, two commissions in one day. Not one, but two. What do you think of that? He slapped his immense orange thigh delightedly. Wilfred ignored him. Hey, is it always this hot in this burg? Wilfred's scowl deepened, and he half turned on his stool to look directly at the stranger. A long moment passed. The stranger's smile wavered, then faded. The neon bar-like glittered in Wilfred's eyes, pinpricks of opaque red light. After a minute, the fat man muttered something under his breath and moved farther down the bar. Wilfred was finishing his fourth when the two girls came in. One was chubby and heavy-featured. She looked frightened. The other swept her gaze around the bar defiantly, her whole body taut with challenge. Her long black hair fell loose almost to the top of her white short shorts, but it had been carefully pushed behind her ears so as not to obscure the sharp points of her nipples showing faintly through the flowered T-shirt that said Kappa Omega Nu. She sauntered to the bar, the other girl scuttling along behind. The whole room watched covertly as she wiggled onto the stool vacated by the salesman, ordered a beer, and gazed into it, smiling faintly, the tip of her pink tongue thrust in the corner of her mouth. The fat man whispered raspingly to his neighbour, Now wouldn't you like a piece of that? The phrase spread through Wilfred's brain, soaked into it, was absorbed by all the little grey pockets. Peace. A piece of that. Pieces. Buy a drink, he said to the girl. Actually, I already have one, she motioned at her beer, smiling mockingly, not looking at him. <clears throat> Come here often? She glanced around the barbell, raising her eyebrows a fraction of an inch. They were a thin, curved tracing of black against poreless white skin. No. Bitch. Hot enough for you? The girl smiled faintly. The K on her shirt, six inches closer to him than the O, was intertwined with blue forget-me-nots. Not for me, she said. The other girl, the chubby one, tittered. Little red darts, tipped with light, began to shoot from Wilfred's eyes backward into his head. Listen, he said harshly, spitting out the words to the forget-me-nots. Who do you think you are, bitch? Some goddamn oil painting? The chubby girl stopped tittering and looked scared. Kappa Omega No swung the barstool a quarter of a turn, her eyes gleaming with lazy amusement. Sure, a Raphael Madonna. He didn't know what that meant, and he knew she knew it. The red darts came faster, bombarding the soft grey gob of brain, ricocheting off the inside of his skull, and just as he was going to make her stop firing them, going to get even for just once in his rotten life for all the crap he had to take, and the money he had just mailed her, and the whole... The fat man was staring at him hard from down the bar. The bartender had moved closer, was polishing glasses within arm's reach, and suddenly Wilfred noticed that the girl had long, pointed nails painted bright red. The bar shrank, collapsing inward upon itself like a folded umbrella, narrowing until it contained only those long red talons, red as no man's ever were, red with all the things that were forbidden and impregnable, and struck back every time that Mama had told him not to touch, red and clawed, sharp as... as... Wilfred whimpered and fled. 
the girl's laughter wafted after him, soft and feminine on the steaming air. But they would pay. All of them, the goddamn bitches, they all would pay. He tore the leaves off Kappa Omega Nu, ceremoniously holding his cigarette to each. He bent Mama over double and tied her stem that way. Marion and Clara he drowned in the toilet. Their roots clogged the pipe. Janice he withered with the rest of the whiskey bottle that he didn't drink himself. But it wasn't enough. He tortured five of them, ten, but the trailer was still crowded with plants, teeming with them, grinding their hips at him and waving their tendrils. The world was choked with them, playing with them, and there was no escape from the brush of their leaves and their damned mocking smiles. They crowded in on him, smelling of perfume and wet dirt, and there was no way that he could ever be free, and if Mama ever caught him... He had finished the bottle, but he moved like a man, cold sober. Damned if he didn't, as he painted the insides of all the windows black, using an old can of half-congealed paint and a sock for a brush. One pane in the kitchen broke and cut deeply into the fleshy part of his hand, but except for cursing Mama's damn cheapness at buying such thin glass, he ignored it. He taped a piece of paper over the hole and painted that black too, and the blood from his hand smeared into the paint in murky streaks. Sunlight! You need it, huh? He pushed his face close to the pansies, breathing on them with fetid breath. You need it, bitch! Not for me, you don't get it! He snapped his fingers on the pansy, and it shuddered. Not for me, not this time. You have to have it, you do it yourself. No sunlight for old Wilfred. Good for a free meal and a few drinks and then nothing. Good old Wilfred can go home and jerk off alone. Not this time. He went back to painting the windows, the paint dripping thickly onto the wall as he leered back over his shoulder at the pansies. No sunlight this time. Not on your goddamn life. Half a glass of whiskey sloshed on his cut hand. Howling in pain, he picked up a grape ivy and hurled it at the door where it shattered, crashing to the floor in a tangle of dirt and broken roots and shards of pot. Only one, though. Slow was better. Slow, and make them beg for it. But not from him. No sunlight from him. He gulped the other half glass savagely. When all the windows had been painted, he got down on the floor and looked for cracks where sunlight might creep in. He stuffed a towel under the door, sealed the sills with putty, and, as an afterthought, did the same to the drains. Once he thought he heard Miss Gilmore knocking briskly at the door, but he screamed at her not to let in any sunlight, and she laughed and went away. He cut all the blossoms off her with a broken pot shard and threw them on the one working electric burner on the tiny range where they singed and crumpled grotesquely, adding the reek of burning petals to the air that was thick with the gasp of hundreds of plants desperate for sunlight. He flicked off the light switch. Wilfred laughed and waved the whiskey bottle at them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online 
and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All of them, the sluts, and toasted his revenge in the dark. Miss Gilmore watched from behind her ruffled chintz curtains as they carried out the body, her shiny black eyes missing nothing. That must be the officer in charge, the big man bringing out all the whiskey bottles and shaking his head. If she craned her neck, she could see the man still inside the trailer, looking at the sealed, painted windows. That one carrying the top half of the Mr Connors bundle looked a little green, but then it had been six days in this heat, so perhaps that was to be expected. Or was it only four or five days since the actual death? She turned her good ear toward the window screen, listening intently. Jesus, Mandalo, don't drop him. Sorry, just be careful. The other officer came out of the trailer. So what do you figure? The big man shrugged. No way to say without an autopsy. The place is a little smashed up, but the door was locked from the inside. My guess is the booze. Maybe heart attack? Miss Gilmore snorted indignantly. Really, you'd think in this day and age policemen would be better educated at least enough to guess at the significance of the painted windows. It was plain as anything. No light, none at all. Just the dark, sealed-in room, and hundreds of plants unable to practice photosynthesis, dying from lack of light, but not until days had gone by, days of breathing in oxygen and giving off carbon dioxide. How long would it take to make enough carbon dioxide? Dear me, how terribly interesting... She must look up the gas ratio for plant respiration. Poor Mr. Connors. Of course, the drinking would be partly to blame. He must have passed out cold, or else the gasping for air would surely have awakened him. But the main thing was his own recklessness. After all, you have to be careful whom you push around in this world. Your victims mustn't get too close. Certainly no closer than the next trailer, unless you are very careful indeed. Miss Gilmore knew that she was always careful. It was with a confident little hum that she turned away from the window and went back to smoothing lime on her writhing azaleas. That was Nancy Cress's Green Thumb, as read to us by none other than Dan Raybarts. Dan is a very regular narrator for the show. Dan Raybarts has been writing since he was big enough to hide a torch under the blankets at night and scribble stories in the back of his maths homework book. Because who needs maths, right? His science fiction, horror, steampunk, and dark fantasy short stories can be found in Beneath Ceaseless Skies, ASIM, Midnight Echo, Aurealis, and in the anthologies Bloodstones, Dreaming of Jin, Ministry Protocol and Regeneration, among many others. In 2014, he was a two-time winner of New Zealand's Sir Julius Vogel Award, one as co-editor of the horror flash fiction anthology Baby Teeth, 
Bite-Sized Tales of Terror, and one for Best New Talent. His narrations can be heard at the Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Starship Sofa, right here at Tales to Terrify, Wiley Writers, and Tales from the Archives podcasts. Find out more at dan.raybarts.com. Link will be in the show notes. Our second story for the evening is brought to us by Tim Levin. His first published story was in the UK indie magazine Psychotrope. In 1994 and in 1997, Tangen published his first novel, Mesmer. Since then, he's had almost over 30 books published in the UK and US by Bantam Spectra, Allison and Busby, Nightshade Books, Simon and Schuster, Leisure Books, PS Publishing, Necessary Evil Press, Cemetery Dance, and many others, with many more due soon. The library section of his website has a full list but I'll highlight the most recent edition, which is Coldbrook, from the back cover. Death is just the beginning. The world as we know it has changed. The reason is Coldbrook. The facility lay deep in the Appalachian Mountains, a secret laboratory called Coldbrook. Theirs was to be the greatest discovery in the history of mankind, but they had no idea what they were unleashing. Now the disease is out and ravaging the human population, the only hope is a cure, and the only cure is genetic resistance. An uninfected person amongst the billions dead. In the chaos of global destruction, there is only one that can save the human race. But will they find her in time? As an Ohio boy familiar with West Virginia and Kentucky, if you're planning on creating a vast secret government laboratory, compound, or other facility, those mountains are a wonderful place to hide it. And now... Tim Lebens, Reconstructing Amy. Sometimes life changes without letting anyone know. It's said that a child becomes an adult when he or she recognizes the fact of their inevitable death. And perhaps the process of death begins when the realization that a partner is never ever coming back first strikes home. Jake had been dying for months. Amy had gone, but it was only now in cold, dark nights haunted by mares and nail-torn sheets, that he had begun to accept that she was gone for good. He avoided sleep, just as a drug addict on the mend will try to steer clear of all their old haunts. But Jake's drug was contained within. Amy, injected through recollection, snorted with each fleeting image of her face. However far he walked, through streets pocked with violent rain and parks teeming with invisible nightlife, his addiction held on to him. It wasn't that he did not want to remember his darling wife. It was just that he could not bear the awful final truth of her death. In a village like this, traces of Amy were everywhere, not only in memory, but in reality, too. With each breath, he might inhale a part of her final sigh. Any speck of dust on a cafe window could be a part of her skin. In pubs where they had drunk together, her fingerprints may still mark a glass, or an ashtray, or the underside of a table where she had always checked for rogue chewing gum. If he saw a friend across the street and they came over to see how he was doing, their first thoughts were always of Amy. He knew this because he could see her reflected in their eyes, as though she were standing just behind him. He chose nighttime to walk the streets. There were fewer people to hide his grief from. There was also less to see, so his mind turned inward, which he liked. Until he saw the ragged little mess in the gutter. At first, he thought it was a child. He stopped, 
looked around with sudden irrational guilt, certain that accusing eyes would fall on him and mark him forever as the killer. Then concern took over, and Amy's voice came from memory. You're a good man, Jake. He hurried along the wet pavement, trying to see further than he could, attempting to make out the truth before he was close enough to do so. It was a rag doll. He picked it up. It did not belong in the gutter, and although he would never want it, he felt the need to put it somewhere dry. It was heavy with water, and he recalled reading somewhere that dead bodies appeared to put on weight. Its original eyes had been lost, and replacements painted on. In the rain, the paint had run, and now it cried blue and black tears. It had Amy's nose. Small, slight, upturned, a dainty baby's nose, he had always told her. He sits next to her in their back garden, running a blade of grass up and down her top lip, trying not to laugh and wake her. The sun has dipped noticeably before she stirs and swats him across the head, and he eats the blade of grass, straddles her on the seat, and tickles her until her cheeks turn red with backed-up laughter. Night and rain closed in, and this time his look of guilt was different. What if the doll's owner was sitting at a window, looking out to see if anyone would be cruel enough to steal their favorite toy? He shoved it inside his coat and walked home. The dampness felt comfortable against his skin, like the tears of someone familiar. "'How are you doing?' Jamie said. Jake knew what he meant. "'Learning to live without her?' The bar was noisy and smoky, just how he liked it. That way, nobody could hear him breathing. He may as well not have been there. He had met up with Jamie after work, and now they were halfway through a bottle of good Irish whiskey. "'I've kissed the Blarney Stone,' Jamie said before every swig of the potent brew. Amy had always said he was good value, undemanding, intelligent, entertaining company.' He had also been a very good friend to both of them, and a rock since Amy's death. Tonight, Jake could hardly wait for him to go home. Move on, Jake, Jamie said. The wrong thing. Always the wrong thing. People told him to move on, place Amy in the fond shadow of memory, don't worry about things, everything would be all right. But none of them had lost her, none of them had held her one night, then held only cold air the next, not even able to find warmth because their shuddering loss drove away everything but misery. "'I'm moving on all the time,' Jake said, not angry. "'There's a difference between moving on and forgetting. Time moves me on, but it also makes me remember. Every minute of the day is another minute I spend on my own, without Amy.' He took a slug of whiskey and grinned. He laughed at the foolishness of those who drank to forget. How could he ever forget Amy, ever, for even a second? It would be like missing a breath. One day that would happen. No more breaths. All he had to do was to find a way to fill the days between then and now. More scotch, he quipped, his playful tone fooling Jamie. It's Irish, you fool, Jamie shouted, clapping Jake on the back, slamming his palm down on the bar. Barman, bring a further bottle of Ireland's finest, if you would be so kind. Jake smiled and sipped, and Jamie talked and poured. Jake had placed the rag doll on the landing. It had seemed the right location. There was no other reason. A wet patch had appeared around it after the first hour as collected rain fled the body, but the heating soon dried it into a vague stain. Every time he walked by, he bent down and tweaked its nose. Last night, when the past shouldered him from sleep and the unbearable present slapped him around the face, he went out onto the landing and tickled the doll's nose, careful not to wake it, 
smiling as he recalled the smell of Amy's breath. Then he had gone back to sleep. Dawn had come without another nightmare. Jamie, I'm going, he said, slipping from his stool and twisting his ankle as he hit the deck. There was a muffled rustle of interest from around the bar, the squeal of moved chairs, sniggers, a high laugh. Then Jamie was pulling him to his feet and guiding him from the smoky room. Moved on, Jake said, laughing through tears. He did not even know he was crying. I've moved on, eh, Jamie? Moved on. Amy! (laughs) Amy who? But it was a sad display, not humorous, and somehow the other patrons knew this. Eyes were averted as Jamie dragged his crying, slurring friend out into the night. There was something in his jacket pocket. It had hard angles and uncomfortable edges, but when it hit daylight it took form. A doll, all pink plastic, cherubic cheeks, knotted hair and grotesque lipstick smile. How the fuck it had got there he had no idea, but the nuclear hangover which was just kicking in hinted that anything, truly anything, was possible. He sat up slowly, and the doll let out a long, painful groan. Jake shouted, hurting his head and shocking himself even more. The doll bounced from his knees and hit the floor, groaning again. Things went fuzzy for a while as his blood found its own level. Time seemed to dilute his foolish fears, for when he picked up the doll once more, he could see that it was one of those fancy ones, sold via mail order, no doubt, with its own tilt-action voice. Conversations would be sparse, Jake knew. Who are you, then? he asked softly. Tilt. And what were you doing in my pocket? Tilt. And look at you. The doll's eyes were big and green, just like Amy's. Clover eyes, his mother-in-law had called them, gained from her supposed Irish ancestry, which Amy had maintained was a complete myth, made up by her mother to give their family some glamour. It's not that her mother found Ireland in particular glamorous, but the fact that it was somewhere she'd never been was enough. Jake had never realized just how deep a doll's eyes could be. Amy glances at him as they drive through country lanes, raising one eyebrow and smiling sexily. Jake feels so content sitting with his arm resting out of the open passenger window, smelling the air blasting through the car, cut grass, the tang of a summer shower, fields of rape casting yellow shadows across the landscape. Amy slows the car and pulls into a lane leading to an open gate, the field beyond standing fallow. What? he says, but she smiles and does not reply. Instead, she shrugs her blouse off her shoulders and unhooks her bra, freeing her breasts to the warm air. She says nothing, but her eyes tell him everything. I love you, they say. Let's have fun. Let's be daring like when we were courting. Jake loves Amy. He is never one to argue with her. They make hay. Jake stumbled from his bed and walked slowly across the landing to the toilet. The rag doll was still there, still sniffing the air with Amy's nose. He put the new plastic doll down next to the bath while he pissed, and it ended up staying there. It watched him strip and shower, and even though his head felt fit to burst, his cock twitched and stood to attention under the doll's gaze. Later he went out for a walk to clear the cobwebs, tickling the rag doll under its nose as he passed by. The scratching of his fingernail sounded like a dry giggle. 
Jamie rang just as he was opening the door. Jake, let's get away for a while, he said. Let's up and leave. You could do with a break, and I'd like to go with you. Let's go to the new forest or something. Do some tree climbing. Jake said no thanks and went on his way. He put his head down and smoked so that nobody would want to talk to him. Amy had loved the woods. Jake had always hated them. They made him itch, and the birds spooked him because they were always out of sight. But today he needed to be there. They were quiet. No one would tap him on the back and ask how he was doing. Amy had always been one for larking around when they came for a walk, as if to pass the threshold between field and wood was to shrug off adulthood and rediscover the careless, aimless abandon of youth. Jake had never been able to do this. Amy always mocked that he'd never even been a kid, and so he'd used to watch as she ran and rolled and climbed, exploring shadowy holes in the ground, peering between old trees to find something older, running away and hiding from him until he passed from angry to unsettled. And she climbed. She loved to climb. She'd been a tomboy when she was young, she said, and Jake could well believe it. She was thin and wiry, and when she swung herself up into the trees, he just stood and gazed in marvel at her athleticism. He had never really liked these trips, but he put up with them because he knew Amy would always come home invigorated, and the first thing she'd want to do is make love hard and fast in the shower. So the woods weren't all that bad. Today they seemed even quieter than usual. There was the occasional twitter of a bird hidden somewhere high in the canopy, a rustle and scratch as some small animal scampered through the undergrowth, but other than that, all was silent. Jake followed the well-worn path which came out on the other side of the woods by the village shops. He'd buy a paper and some orange juice, try to dilute his hangover with vitamin C while reading about all the woes of the world. He recognized parts of the wood, even though he had not been here since Amy's death. A place where they had laughed and shouted and been bitten by wood ants as they watched the thousands of little creatures hurry about on their huge nest. Jake had wanted to throw a caterpillar in there to see what happened, but Amy hadn't let him. She'd said it was cruel, and how would he like it? A small bridge spanned a dry stream. Their initials were carved here somewhere, another youthful antic Amy had been guilty of one summer day several years ago. Jake shut his eyes. He did not want to see their names. He hated the thought that a scar in old wood still existed, while the person who had whittled it there was little more than dust in his own frequent tears. He reached the shops and tried to buy some orange juice, but there were several people in there and they assaulted him with their pitying gaze. He turned around and walked out, back strafed by sibilant compassion. He went to the baker's instead and bought a fresh loaf without looking up from the display case. Forty pence the baker said, but Jake could hear the undertones. My God, his wife died. How can he handle that poor bastard? What could I say? Should I say anything? Maybe best to just let him go. Back in the woods again, because the roads were busier now, and there was always the chance of someone stopping and offering him a lift. And by the way, how are you coping now that you're on your own? Besides, from this end, the woods looked nice, welcoming. And even though memories of Amy made him sad, still... He needed to remember. As he passed the tree where she'd had her accident, he saw something propped against the trunk. A doll, he thought, even before he got close enough to see properly. Why he would think that, he did not know. But he was right, it was a doll, though of a sort he had never seen. This one was made of the woods, a construct of twigs and leaves and wet bark and dried plant tendrils. It stared at him with acorn eyes, and its fingers pointed with palm-frond dexterity, and its legs, 
its legs. Amy climbs the tree, swinging herself from branch to branch, higher and higher. Jake stays below, smiling up at her and bending and twisting so he can see up her skirt. Great views from up here, she says. Down here, too, he says. She does a forward roll across a branch to flash her knickers at him. Then she slips and falls. Oh, is all she says as one branch pushes her into another. She hits the ground with a whoosh of air from her lungs, a fart, and a crack as something breaks. Jake is there immediately, terrified at what he will see. Her leg is broken badly. She's looking up at him with tears in her eyes. Sorry, hon, she says. She spends three weeks in hospital. He never knew exactly what she'd apologized for. The doll had a twisted left leg. It was knotted at the base, just as Amy's had been, and it was actually a thumbnail shorter than the other, just like Amy. Jake carried the doll home, buzzed all the way by fresh memories he had thought lost forever, each one vibrant and surprising like a dream recalled after twenty years. The doll sat in the crook of his arm as if watching the way they were going, ready to object should he take a wrong turn. It went in the dining room, which only seemed right. Small insects and dried bark fell from its innards for the first few hours, but Jake sucked them up with a vacuum cleaner and soon it sat on its own clean, dry table. He looked at it and remembered Amy's legs kicking in the tree, curled beneath her as she watched television, wrapped around his neck as he nuzzled where she loved to be nuzzled. He tickled the ragdoll's nose on the landing and smiled at the green eyes in the bathroom. Later, he rang Jamie and suggested a meal. His friend accepted willingly. Locking the front door behind him, he whispered, Be back soon. He did not know to whom exactly he was talking, but they seemed to hear anyway. Jake and Jamie went to a small bistro in a neighboring village, intended for tourists but frequented mostly by the bored youths of the area. Some of them were there now, smoking and looking hard and flashing tattoos and earrings. I've found some things, Jake said, but suddenly he did not feel like telling. There was something secret about the dolls, a sense of mystery which felt fresh and naive but if revealed would take on a dangerous quality. He glanced at the chair beside him, sure for an instant that Amy was there, but there was only hazy smoke from the kid's cigarettes. I'll get us a coffee, Jamie said, then we can order. Not, so what have you found, Jake? Not, what were you going to say, Jake? He watched Jamie walk to the counter, pick up a menu and order a couple of coffees. When his friend sat back down, he was taking something from his pocket. "'What did Amy always call me?' Jamie asked suddenly. He barely mentioned her by name since her death, as if to do so would aggravate Jake's grief. "'Do you remember?' "'What do you mean?' Jake asked. He felt the sting of tears threatening, coughed as if to blame it on the smoke. Even the mention of her name. "'You remember,' Jamie said. He'd taken a small file from his pocket, clear as glass, but apparently flexible. He placed it gently on the table, and it sounded like a feather hitting water. All those times we went out together, all those intimate moments when there was just the three of us, drinking whiskey, talking about books and holidays and God and sex and food, Jake did recall. Those times were often all he thought of, because they were the best they'd had, the times before Amy had gone and walked in front of a car. What did Amy call me at the end of those long nights, Jake? when I kissed you both goodbye with the innocence of good friends, when you watched me down the garden path and waved from your doorway as I went out into the night. As Jamie talked, he stroked the thing he'd taken from his pocket. 
It opened slowly, like the accelerated film of a flower turning and facing the sun, and a splash of white light leapt from it and drowned itself in Jake's coffee. Do you remember? She called you Jamie, Jake said, but even as he spoke, he could not picture Amy saying that name. No, not Jamie, something else. She'd called him something else. They sat in silence for a while until the waiter came to take their order. Then Jamie reached across the table and grabbed one of Jake's hands in both of his. There were sniggers from the group of kids. Jamie glanced at them, and they were silent. Jake, he said, drink your coffee, then go to some places. He told him which places. Jake did not question what he was being told, or even why. After the first whiff of coffee, everything seemed to fall into place, and what Jamie was telling him made perfect sense, even though the sense was yet to be made. The kids smoking cheap cigarettes glanced over and smiled, the smoke drifting in halos around their shaven heads. At the first sip, hot, acidic, a tantalizing touch to his throat, Amy kissed him on the back of the neck, though when he turned around there was only a man opening a door. The man had a bag over his shoulder, which twitched with hidden lives, and Jake only realized as the door closed behind him that it was Jamie. What did Amy call me? he had asked. What name did she use? Tired, confused, and completely rid of his hangover, Jake left the bistro and went to the first of the places Jamie had told him to visit. In the public toilet there were three cubicles, two of which were occupied. Jake went into the third, and, without locking the door, stuck his hand into the pan. He curved his fingers and felt further around the bend until something solid brushed his fingertips. It was a beanie doll, clownish colors faded, one eye missing, leaving only the memory of stitches behind. It had Amy's hair, long, dark, wild, and yet always right, always perfect. Amy steps from the shower and shakes her head, hair splaying out and water spraying further still. Jake curses as his clean shirt is spotted and stained. They are going out tonight, and they should have left already. Amy giggles at his anger, chases him into the bedroom and squeezes him tight, leaving two large breast-shaped patches on the front of his shirt. It is impossible to be angry with her. The beanie went in the living room. The second-hand shop looked like an explosion in a devout Christian's parlor. Every tacky, exploitive, and offensive item of religious paraphernalia ever thought of was for sale here. Plastic Christs with glowing eyes, a hundred crosses, all certified portions of the one true cross, self-exorcism kits with warnings on the labels about having to be an adult to buy one, and a Jesus doll, posable arms frozen by ignorance into a welcoming embrace, one leg missing, the crown of thorns missing too. Jake had felt uncomfortable in the shop until now because Jesus had Amy's ears. Big ears, hidden beneath flowing locks, or, in this case, stringy horse's hair. Amy prepares tea in their caravan on the Cornish coast, and the smell tells Jake that the meal will discredit her claim of not being able to cook with the first mouthful. She's often like that, not so much putting herself down as hiding obvious talents in order to produce surprises every now and then. When he opens the door and sees that she is wearing nothing but an apron, things get out of hand and they have pudding first. The Jesus doll went in the kitchen, ears exposed by a hasty and decidedly unholy haircut. By the end of the day, there were no more places to go. So Jake went home. 
Jake sat on their bed and watched the sun rise over the wooded hills to the east. He had not slept all night. He'd wandered the house, tending the dolls and letting them inspire memories long since forgotten. And all the time he'd been thinking of what Jamie had said the previous day, wondering where all these dolls had come from. Wondering also why it felt as though Amy were strolling around the house with him. Not only did the beanie have her hair, but he could also smell her breath when he walked by. The doll with Amy's nose inspired a discorporated giggle as Jake squatted before it, the sort of laugh she'd utter before playing some joke on him. Everywhere in the house reminded him more and more of his dead wife, and yet it was all still memory. Somehow, after the strangeness of yesterday, he had expected a little more. Then, as the sun rose fully, he remembered what Amy had used to call Jamie. Angel. Not my angel or our angel, just plain angel. See you, angel, she'd say after a night on the town, and she'd peck him on the cheek. Hey, angel, she'd greet him as she stood on their doorway, a bottle of wine in one hand and a recommended book in the other. She called him angel, Jake said. And the house began to breathe. That was Tim Levin's Reconstructing Amy, as read to us by Wilson Fowley. You may remember his reading of A.P. Matlock's Still, She Screams, back in episode 128. Wilson Fowley lives in Vancouver, Canada, with his wife and two children. By day, he programs computers for a living. By night, well, some evenings, he's the director of a community show chorus. In the spare time he has left, he narrates stories for various podcasts. He intends to record a voiceover demo any day now, really. And that will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. We'll continue our journey east next week, and in fact, I think we might want to get a move on it. I'm not sure what the statute of limitation is on criminal trespass in the Wolverine State. We'll see you next time here at Tales to Terrify. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 